0: You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics, and I'm thrilled to finally bring you part three of our interview with Dr. Kurt Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a psychiatrist in private practice in Falls Church, Virginia, and the founder of the Center for Being Known. An organization that develops resources to educate and train leaders about the intersection between interpersonal neurobiology, Christian spiritual formation, and vocational creativity. I'm especially glad to finally get part three of this conversation out to you because this is the part of the conversation that included the points that were the newest and the most exciting to me. After the interview, we'll come back together and I'll pull some of those points out for us. But first, I want to get us ready with some quick context. April was a very busy month for us at the Center for Christian Civics. I think we had five or six events from the last week of March to the end of April, and a couple of those events were classes and workshops on how believers should approach the intersection of Christian faith and civic life. Our workshops are usually pretty wide-ranging. We cover a lot of ground in not a lot of time. But one of the ideas we always get into is that it's important to grapple with what's called the noetic effects of sin. That is, the effects that the fall had on our minds and our intellect, on the way our minds work. This final stretch of the conversation with Dr. Thompson starts with a discussion of something that I think can pretty definitely be considered a noetic effect of the fall. Motivated reasoning. Motivated reasoning is one of those ideas that it's easy to accept it about other people, but hard to accept it about ourselves. It's the idea that we don't actually follow arguments or evidence or ideas to their real conclusions, even if we think we do. Instead, motivated reasoning is the idea that we interpret evidence and arguments and ideas in ways that support whatever vision of ourselves or Whatever vision of the world we already, on a gut level, want to believe. We don't do it deliberately, and we're often not even aware that it's happening. But this idea can be backed up by scripture. Paul says that we don't see things clearly right now. We see through a glass dimly, and we're only going to see things clearly after the resurrection. The Psalms talk about our hearts and our minds as things we can't understand ourselves. We need God to search our hearts and know us. And then we need him to reveal our hearts to ourselves. After the interview, I'll come back to talk about a couple of the other ideas Dr. Thompson brings up. But first, we're going to jump right back into the conversation as he starts to explain a couple of the neurological and psychological dynamics that can feed into motivated reasoning.
1: I tend to tell a story the way that I tend to tell it as a way to um, help me make sense of the world. Again, following the kind of the general route of the brain, bottom to top and right to left, we sense things with our spinal cord, our brainstem takes things in from the outside and the inside of the brain, and then we move it forward to the right side of the brain, and we move from the right side of the brain to the left side of the brain, where we make sense of what we sense. We are doing this all the time. And we tend to make sense of things in such a way that tends to reduce distress as expeditiously as possible. In fact, most of how we navigate the world is not, even though we might think that it is, it is not about um, making decisions or thinking things because primarily they are correct in concert with or consistent with objective reality, but rather we tend to make sense of things in such a way that enables us to lower our distress or to increase our sense of comfort. And sometimes that sense of comfort leads us to tell stories the way we do. Um, And the more we tell a story, the way that we tell it, if it continues to give us comfort and continues to connect us to other people, that story is gonna have increasingly high plausibility for me. Mm. And so in some respects, uh, books like The Righteous Mind Ah, uh, point out this notion of how we tell stories and how those stories are are associated with attachment processes. What's important about what doesn't get said is that we we can assume that uh, we're not really able to change those stories. And the reality is that our stories are 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 able to be changed if we are willing to be curious, if we're willing to be humble enough to recognize that uh, in the end, My story, as I understand it, is only going to be most truly told, once again, this is critical, I think, most truly told when I'm actually able to be in conversation with people with whom I have great differences. Again, we were made as human beings from the beginning, not as homogenous beings. If God had wanted to have us all get along, he could have made one generic, there'd be no, like we'd all be the same. And this is the thing that we think, right? We tend to believe that, you know, joy comes when we are with people who are like us. And it's certainly true that we have fun when we're with people. I, as I tell people, I didn't want to marry my, I didn't want to marry Phyllis, my wife of 31 and a half years. I wanted to marry a far more attractive, sexier version of Kurt. That's who I really <laughs> wanted to marry. I don't want to marry Phyllis. I wanted to marry me, only in, like in a, in a like in a beautiful body that's 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 what i wanted to marry <laughs> i didn't really want to marry somebody who was really as it turns out this radically different from me in some respects and yet god has made us in such a way that in order for us to see what real joy looks like we're going to have to be with people with whom we have radical differences and god, there, there's nobody who has more radical differences than god and man and in some respects, this is what God, God makes us. in order. To, and now he's got something with whom he's radically different and then chooses to have relationship with us and then says to us, I want you to do the same. I want you to live like we live, like we, the Godhead, lives. Let us make mankind in our image. And so this sense of motivated reasoning um, begins, I think, with the sense, like with, with the presumption that, like, I want to be with people who are like me. And what the gospel, I think— invites us to consider is like, I wanna wake up in the morning and ask the question, who are the people that I'm gonna run into this day? Who can I be looking for? Not just who might I accidentally run into, but who can I be looking for with intention, with whom I have great difference and set out to make contact, set out to be embodied, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, you know, self-control in that particular relationship on purpose, and in so doing, in making that contact, it by definition will tend to uh, help prevent me from starting from the position of this motivated reasoning by which this, you know, that, that the book kind of, kind of highlights, such that uh, we're not left to drift in uh, an automatized way, not paying attention to how my old story my old narrative and my old attachments are just kind of like uh, just kind of like the tide kind of taking me out without uh, my even being consciously aware that that's what's taking place
0: it sounds like there's not any easy fix for motivated reasoning what it takes is long slow formations of relationships with people whose Motivated reasoning is bent toward a different direction from you, and getting to actually understand them better, and through understanding them better, being known better yourself.
1: I think of the I think of the biblical phrase, "Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will direct your paths." I tell you, like I'm not very good at humbling myself. I'm just not very good at it. Like I like what I like, and I want other people to like what I like. And I will go to almost any length to spin a story in my head, to tell a narrative that helps me make sense of how it is that what I like is not just what I like, but the right way to like what anybody should like. And in so doing though, I I, I often forget that the reason that I'm doing that in the first place is often because I have my own unfinished business. I have my own places of brokenness of woundedness of sin of places where god where i've not yet let god enter into my uh, basement full of crap that needs to be healed reconciled renewed and so frequently we find that my uh, need to intensely hold on to a rigid version of my story is not just because primarily I think my story is true, but rather I hold on to and continue to believe that that part of my story is true as a way to help me regulate and contend with and contain my own unfinished business. Is it
0: realistic to expect to finish that business before the resurrection, before the consummation of all things?
1: I I think the answer is definitively no, but, but here's the other thing. There's there's no indication in the biblical narrative that we are expected to expect to finish that business. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love uh, I mean C.S. Lewis's fiction has probably been the best way for me to learn his theology. And in The Great Divorce, uh, one of the one of the pictures that I come away with from this dream that the protagonist has in The Great Divorce is the sense, even though they don't say this explicitly, is the sense that Here in our life, we are practicing for heaven. That's what we're doing. We're we're practicing for heaven. And practice is always imperfect. But the point is not to become perfect. The point is to increasingly love to play the game. This is why we practice. Mm -hmm. We don't practice just so that we can beat the opponent, just so that we can become good at what we do. We become good at what we do in order to enjoy playing the game. I'm not worried about whether or not I'm getting better because I'm going to get closer to perfection. I'm I'm wanna get better because the more the, the better I get, the more joy I get in playing the game. And so uh when when we see that Uh, any of these interactions with other people with whom we have difference is an opportunity for me to grow in my joy in playing the game in this sense, Mm. grow in my joy of connecting with people with whom I have great difference. Because as I say, people look, if we're not practicing for heaven, when it gets here, it may crush us. We won't, we may not know what to do with it. When we, when heaven arrives and, and God welcomes us in and says, Hey, all you all Democrats, I want you to come over here and like, we're going to have, we're going to have a party with the Republicans. And they're like, how did they even get here? We don't even know how they got here. Right. Because we are so stuck in, we are so committed to telling stories about ourselves the way that we do. Again, as a way to protect ourselves from unfinished business that we often don't know that we don't know about. Evil would love nothing more than for us to think that this is really all these this political harshness that we've seen in the last 2 years is really about politics. It's not about politics. Politics is only the way like our unfinished business internally at the soul level is being put on full display.
0: So political cultural depolarization in the church community is not just something that helps us exercise our responsibility to be good stewards of our community. And it's not just something that provides kind of a confounding witness to people outside the church. It's actually also a practice for people in the church of what it's going to be like when we're made perfect, when the kingdom comes, that's a dimension of it. Frankly, I've never thought about before. I've thought about this first two a lot, but that third point is, really convicting just from on a personal level
1: yeah it is and, and I mean it's convicting to me too like I th- those you know that's kind of like I I don't, I don't I mean to be honest it's convicting to me because like I'm not very good at it mm-hmm. you know and so I, I like the idea uh more than I like the actual practice of it um and I th- but but I but I, I do believe that like it is the first thing like I think witness for instance to the world is a byproduct of this. Uh being a witness is not my first priority. It is a byproduct of what we do when we really do see so when Jesus comes and says in Mark's gospel, when Jesus comes and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. The notion is not like, dude, you better repent, because if 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 you don't like like the kingdom, you know, it's coming, you're gonna be left left out. It, it's more a matter of like, no, it is here. And like repentance is about practicing for what's here. Hmm. And if that's what I'm doing, if I'm practicing, if I'm going to do the Sermon on the Mount, because like that's the only way one can like survive the kingdom, if you will, then if that's what I'm practicing, when it gets here, we'll turn around and say, well, of course, this is the way that we want to live. And of course, practicing this necessarily bears witness because it is necessarily so radically different. But it's not bearing witness because bearing a witness is what I'm first trying to do. It bears a witness just because it's so starkly different from everything else that we hear and see that's going on around us.
0: We know that government, politics, civics, these are big, complicated topics, and they can suck up as much time and mental energy as a person is willing to give them. And over the last couple of years, especially 2016, 2017, I think um, there were a lot of people that kind of reached their limit. I think 2016 and 2017 were the years that these topics for a lot of people became so frustrating that they pulled the plug. Uh, But one of our chief commitments at the Center for Christian Civics is that if you're a Christian in the U.S., God didn't put you in a representative and participatory democracy by accident. Mm -hmm. He's given you some sliver of responsibility by placing you here that most people over most of the course of human history didn't have. And so you have to think very seriously about what it means for this responsibility that you might not want to bear. That might be frustrating and exhausting to you. You have to think about what it means to be given that responsibility by God. So how can our listeners who are convinced that they have some kind of spiritual mandate to embody the gospel in their civic lives, do that without driving themselves into the ground emotionally or intellectually? How can they practice good mental or emotional or neurological self-care? You
1: know, the Bible was written in a world that was far less virtual than ours is. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we even think about as engagement uh, amounts to reading newspaper or online articles Uh, most of which are increasingly inflammatory. And so one of the things I would consider as a possible first step is um, the discipline of restraint. What are the things that we actually expose ourselves to that are not, in fact, actual embodied encounters with our civic system? Uh, An encounter with Facebook posts I don't consider to be uh, real encounters with anything. They don't really tell me much of anything.
0: That said, please continue to share our blog posts and podcasts on Facebook.
1: With <laughs> with that one exception. <laughs> um, but what I what I mean by that is um, if uh, if someone if someone has a relationship with you and they know you and they want to and they're going to follow you and your blog post and your, your Facebook posts and so forth, like that's different than I'm just picking things out of the ether. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm listening to CNN or I'm listening to Fox or whatever it is that I'm doing, but I'm not really having embodied encounters with real people with whom I had great difference. And so I, I would say that, you know, first of all, it's the discipline of restraint. It is saying no to things that are really not encounters with our civic experience. And then I would say, uh, you know, the way that we actually, as the way we bear witness to as, as believers is to actually have encounters with people with whom we have difference. I, I can think of a neighbor that's two doors down from me, actually where I live, a neighbor who's two doors down from me, who I, I'm, I'm guessing may think politically and socially about things um, differently than I do. The single most helpful thing that I can do is to find a way. I want to say, like, let's have dinner together. Like, quite literally, I want to have dinner with you. And I want to say, tell me about what you think about this and about that. But I don't, but then, again, it gets back to the questions of, I don't just want to know what they think politically. I want to have a sense of, like, where is this coming from out of their story? The same thing can be true about what we do with with our government. Like, it's just easy to see all the posters and signs that go up every election that come on vote for this person or that person. And it just completely disregarded because I'm just, I wanted nothing to do with that. Well, I think it matters that we would, you know, actually make contact with these, make contact with somebody. And, and by that like, again, say like, you know, can we have, can we have coffee together for me to know to have, that I can have more increasingly embodied engagement with this. Um, for those who are, you know, for those who are actually in the government process, I mean, I know a lot of government workers that are doing really, 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 really effective hard work. Um, and some of those folks, uh, what I hear from them is that uh, you know some of their some of the work that they're doing that they that they see as most profitable is continuing to be in conversation with people who are on the other side of the aisle from them. These are things that we actually don't hear very much about. For all of our polls that tell us about how fractured things are, and I don't doubt that that's the case, um, I also know that there are lines of connection that we very rarely ever hear about that are taking place. And I would say that to the degree that we're able to do that, it's going to be to our advantage.
0: A lot of the advice you're giving is, I think, very good, very challenging in a healthy way. But it does go against the grain of the cultural milieu we live in. You said that uh, a lot of the forces in our world are pushing us to be increasingly virtual and increasingly disembodied. Going against those kinds of cultural trends can take emotion, can take resilience, can take fortitude. That doesn't come easily. Um, How should people think about building that fortitude?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, to your to your listeners, I, if I I would imagine that if I were one of your listeners, it would be uh, easy for me to assume that um, what we have to do is to do this like by ourselves. That is uh, a reflection of the very culture that we're we've been describing. Now, we might be smart enough to know, oh, we've got to do this, we've got to organize, and so forth. Um, but most of us, I would suggest, really walk around on the planet not feeling very connected to each other. Uh, I think it's no accident that, you know, Jesus did not come and pick one person to be his successor. He picked a group of 12, it turned out to be probably more than that. Um, I think it's not surprising that when God chose, when, when God asked Abraham to partner with him, he didn't just ask Abraham by himself to pick up and leave. Abraham left with his whole family, his family, Lot, ever, the whole kit and caboodle went. God works in communities and when we're gonna work with systems, work within systems, we need to be part of a system that's doing that. Hence William Wilberforce, mm-hmm. right? And his band of Clapham folks. So I think that one thing that I would say that, that we can do is for those people who are like-minded and who really wanna do this, I would say like, it would be an important thing to be getting together on, our, like, in like in the same room at the same time, not by Skype uh, and praying about what, what we're doing. And this can't be like just uh, God help us be better civic people, right? We want a name. What are we going to do this week? Like who are we? Who are the conversations that we're going to have? What if we decide that we're going to have some dinners together with people? We're going to we're going to bring people together over dinner. People that we know are not in the same place to have conversation and to really say like what we really want at the end of the day is we want a world of goodness and beauty, and we know that we're different, but we really want. To emphasize that we we want to make contact well like we want ourselves to flourish together we want to love one another we want to be in the best place most of what god does he does in very very small and slowly moving increments hmm.
0: all right we're back thanks for sticking with us i know it was a longer stretch between episodes than anyone wanted but i hope it was worth the wait before we get into prayer together i want to take a couple minutes to talk about one more idea from this interview and one action item that Dr. Thompson suggested off of it. First, the idea. Practicing for heaven. Practicing for the future we know we're expecting. I spend a lot of time talking and thinking about how we can live out our faith in our actions and in our relationships. But this idea of practicing for heaven made me realize that I was missing a pretty important point. I tend to think about discipleship, about spiritual formation, about transformed relationships and passionate stewardship as previews of the kingdom for other people. The reason we work for these different kinds of relationships or the reason we work to change our communities is because doing that gives other people previews of the kingdom, gives them foretastes of it. It's the appetizer that helps them get excited about Jesus's meal. Back in part one or two of this interview, we talked about how we have to actively train to have these kinds of hard relationships, the same way that athletes train for a hard race. And we said that we do this because it makes us better at helping other people understand the kingdom that's coming. It helps us witness to other people more effectively. But Dr. Thompson reminded me of the fact that Jesus didn't just come for other people, He came for us, too. He came for you. And getting better at these kinds of relationships isn't just good for other people. It's good for us. It's good for you. It's good for me. It gives us a chance to live the way that we were meant to live. And it means that when the kingdom comes, we'll have so much practice doing this under the weight of sin, that doing it without the burden of sin is going to feel more like dancing than work. If there's one idea I've taken away from this long conversation with Dr. Thompson, one thing he said that's had the biggest effect on the way I think and behave and pray over the last few months, that's it. The idea that our lives, our attempts to walk in line with the gospel, even when it's hard, aren't just discipline. They're also rehearsal for heaven. And that's been a really encouraging thought, a really motivating thought when I haven't wanted to talk with someone or pray for someone. Now the action item. The interview ended with Dr. Thompson offering a suggestion for how to start practicing for heaven when it comes to our relationships in the church with our political opponents. He suggested meeting regularly to practice having these conversations, and I want to make sure you're all aware of a resource we offer that can help with that. If you're looking for a way to start practicing those conversations in ways that you can be sure won't just spin out into anger or arguments or name calling, a way to actually help ground you and your friends or you and your small group members in the gospel as you start having these embodied encounters across partisan divides, then I think the place to start is probably going to be with our first Bible study guide, Light to the World. It follows the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and incarnation, and guides you all through a conversation on how each chapter of that story changes the way you respond to politics and political campaigns, no matter what political ideologies you hold or sympathize with. It can give a group of Christians who have never voted the same way as one another a shared vocabulary for talking about politics and government, and it can help establish a baseline of trust so that you can start practicing for heaven in these relationships more confidently. In just a few minutes, we're going to wrap up this episode with some recommended reading and some quick rundowns of upcoming episodes. But first, let's take a few minutes to pray together. Mighty God, we spend so much time waiting for your future, mourning the fact that it's not here yet, thanking you for the promise of it, praising you for your power to make it a reality, asking you to work through us to help more people believe in it and become excited about it. But I know that in all of that, I've often neglected to simply prepare for it, to practice for the heaven that I believe is coming. And I think I'm probably not the only one. Your word tells us you love us, that you're concerned for our hearts, our minds, our strength, and our lives that we are your beloved children. And yet, too often, we think that your only concern is using us to get to others. We forget that you love us as much as you love those you trust us to reach. You don't just want us to celebrate you so that other people can see you being celebrated. You want us to celebrate you because you want us to have hearts that feel cause to celebrate. Thank you for considering us so closely by your Spirit, lead us in preparation for your kingdom. As we practice these hard duties, these difficult relationships, these disciplines of compassion and responsibility, open the eyes of our hearts so that we can not just see your coming future more clearly, but also better understand what the experience of that future will be like for us. You sent your Son to teach us to prepare for it. He went to the cross to secure our place in it, And you raised him from the dead to prove to us that it is a guarantee. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, thank you for praying with me. If you want to go deeper into some of the ideas Dr. Thompson brought up, then we'll have one of the books he mentioned linked out in our next newsletter, along with a couple other books related to topics that he brought up. You can sign up for that on our website, ChristianCivics.org, under the Publications tab. And that's also where you can find that Bible study guide, Light to the World. The spring and summer are shaping up to be a pretty busy time on the podcast. We have a ton of episodes recorded and lined up. Uh, Some of the topics we're gonna be covering are ministry to refugees and asylum seekers, how to have faithful conversations with non-Christians when we don't control the terms of debate, some excerpts from some of those events I mentioned that we hosted in April, and a whole bunch of interviews from last month's MLK50 conference. If you want to help us make sure that we can get these episodes out on time, regularly, more consistently, then consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Center for Christian Civics. Also, if you're interested in learning more about the Center for Christian Civics, my co-founder and I recently recorded an oral history of the organization that's going to be going out to donors at the start of July. So if you've made a tax-deductible donation of any size to the Center for Christian Civics in 2017 or 2018, you'll be getting that bonus episode in just a few weeks. If you haven't made that donation yet, but you want to before the bonus episode goes out, then head online to christiancivics.org slash donate. If you've been enjoying this podcast, however intermittently it's been coming out, please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. That all really does help other people find us. If you have any questions or concerns or if there are any topics you want us to dive into in future episodes, please drop us a line through the contact form on our website. We do read every note that comes in. Your encouragement means a lot and your questions help us plan for the future on the blog and on the podcast. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks and don't forget to visit our website, christiancivics.org to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.